Welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Uh, today, I am very lucky to have a friend and who also happens to be an award-winning, internationally known futurist, researcher, writer, speaker, consultant, and teacher in higher education. This person is Brian Alexander. Brian has worked with the National Institute for Technology and Liberal Education, a nonprofit working to help small colleges and universities best integrate digital technologies. And since 2013, he has been consulting in the higher education space through his firm in the United States and abroad. And we were very lucky to work with him on one project this hour. Brian speaks widely and publishes frequently. This year, he released his new book, Universities on Fire, Higher Education in the Age of Climate Crisis. His other recent books are Gearing Up for Learning Beyond K-12, Academia Next, The Futures of Higher Education, and The New Digital Storytelling. Brian is currently a senior scholar at Georgetown University and teaches graduate seminars in their learning, design, and technology program. Enjoy. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Brian Alexander. Brian, at this point, I would like to consider a dear friend. He's a futurist specializing in the future of higher education, and he's a senior scholar at Georgetown University. Brian, welcome. Thank you so much for that very, very kind welcome, uh, Pinar. It's, it's really, really good to reconnect with you. We're so lucky to have you today. I We really, really, whenever we talk to you, we get inspired and really just it's always eye-opening for us. So I'm so excited that we're, we have you on our podcast for our audience as well. So you. can you please also talk a little bit more about yourself and your background? And I guess like how you became so passionate about the future of higher education. Oh, that's a that's a great question. Uh, and I'll, I'll try and keep this to a minimum if possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm a futurist. That means I help people think about their future. I try and think about it more strategically, more creatively. And uh, the people in this question tend to be people in and around higher education. So that's everyone on a given college or university campus, along with people who are adjacent to that, such as nonprofits and for-profits that work for higher education, like publishers and ed tech companies, along with associations, and also with some governments, uh, state, federal, national governments that work in higher education. So in order to do this work, I do all kinds of stuff. Uh, I give talks, I lead workshops, I write articles, I write books, I lead a weekly video conversation about the future of higher education. And that's now in its eighth year, which I'm still amazed to be able to say out loud. Um, I I got into this um, kind of by accident and kind of by destiny. Um, My graduate work was in English literature uh, and I got my PhD from the University of Michigan, got a job teaching in a small college, loved it uh, and was very exciting. And then I took a job working for a nonprofit that worked with 300 small colleges and universities in the US. And I was their emerging technology person. I helped them grapple with brand new technologies. And this is from about 2002 to about 2015. So some of those new technologies are of course old hat now like mobile devices, what we then call web 2.0 or social media and so on. And I found that when I was doing this work, which was great, um, I found that when I went to a campus and spoke with economics and said, hello, let's talk about emerging technology, I would lose half of the audience right away. 
And, and that always made me sad. And I would ask these people, why did I lose you? And they'd say various things like, I hate technology, you would always get that. Um, you get people who say, well, I'm not a technologist, I'm a biologist or a French you know, professor, and my job is to focus on that. Or people would say, we are a, a nation of specialists, and, and so we hire specialists in IT, and they're the ones in charge of that. And I thought, all right, all that makes sense, except for the anti-technology part. But I, I thought, I need to reach them. Um, and then I realized that my work was going way beyond technology, that in order to explain technology and answer people's questions, I had to bring in economics, demographics, policy, social attitudes, not just the history of higher education, it's sheer complexity. And I realized that what I was doing was actually futures work. So I checked this out with the futures community and found, yeah, I was doing a lot of this, including trends analysis and scenarios. So I leaned into that and just redefined my work in terms of futures. And then when I went to academics and said, let's talk about the future of higher education. Everybody would be on board. Everybody would be passionate. They'd have ideas. Uh, and even the people who say, ah, I hate technology, they'd be happy to talk about technology because it was reframed in that way. So uh, I could be cynical and say this is a language hack, but it, it really wasn't. Uh, it's really just a way of reframing how we think about not just technology and education, but higher education in general. And I, I started my own business uh, almost a decade ago. Uh, and I work with academics around the world. Uh, the only continent I haven't worked on is, Antar is Antarctica. And I'm, I'm hoping to get there at some point. <laughs> love that. Yeah, everybody needs you for sure. And I love what you, the example you just gave in terms of like, it's such a beautiful like design research example too. Like mm -hmm. you basically reframed the problem statement, but also... <laughs> you made it like inclusive and understandable by your audience too, right? So like technology was just one piece of it, right? Like the adoption of that, scaling of that, implementation of that, it's all these other things that you're also talking about. So reframing what the actual like need there is, right? Like why are we even talking about emerging technologies anyway? Um, and also really making the conversation um, like redesigning the conversation in a way that is appealing to your audience too. So in that way, I love both, right? I love the reframing and I love the hack part because the hack part is necessary in order to be able to start co-creating with people and get in a more collaborative mindset rather than you coming off like an expert, just telling some things to people and they're like, yeah, okay, bye. Um, so in that sense, I think that's a beautiful example of like a design research process. And <laughs> I, I mean, I think you already like hinted, started to hint out a little bit, right? Like the resistance, for example, um, in terms of like when you like go, went in and said technology resistance from some of uh, academia. And I like personally, I went through this. I'm part-time faculty at Parsons and um, the program I'm in is like redesigning its curriculum to make it more inclusive of what students ask for in the past. So the intent there is amazing, right? Like it's actually trying to redesign the curriculum with student feedback. Um, but of course it calls for a lot of work. And the first prototype of it launched this semester. And of course there's a lot of chaos because the entire program is changing. And I'm also seeing a lot of resistance on that from some academics, like really criticizing the change and really criti criticizing the hot mess that it became. And I'm kind of like, you know, if we were in the tech space, this would have been seen as like, 
prototype iteration number one or beta version. And we would go from there. Like we wouldn't criticize something just because it didn't score a hundred percent on day one. So resistance is something that I keep like both experiencing myself and like seeing, and you also brought it up. Can we talk about that a little bit more on maybe like, why do we see this? And what does that also like what, that culture? How is that impacting the industry in general? Mm, mm. Well, that's a great story. I didn't know that about Parsons. What a what a good experience to go through. Yeah. Um, well, uh, one part of this is that academia, generally speaking, has a strong conservative streak. And I, I don't mean politically, ideologically conservative. I just mean institutionally. That, and this often comes from a great place. It comes from the love of, of what we do, either one specialty, so you know, architecture, design, um, or uh, also of the you know, very, very rare space, the zone that academia makes available, that space to do research, to learn, and to do that freed for a time from the pressures of, of the economy and the marketplace. Uh, and it's also, you know, a thousand, roughly a thousand years of universities and colleges. It's a way of protecting against outside threats. Uh, and those can be very, very real, as we've seen in all kinds of countries uh, in different ways. Uh, and also, I think there's a, a, for some academics, not all, they tend to see themselves, they anchor their identity within an institution. And even if they don't like it, they will think that way. Uh, others will see themselves as primarily in their profession. So if you talk to a librarian, they're a librarian regardless of where they are, or you talk to a philosopher and they're a philosopher first and they happen to be at this college. But for the others, the, that identity is very, very deep with them and any changes to that identity are of course threatening. Um, so that's, I, I think that conservative aspect is, is this isn't a brand new idea. I mean, this is this is famous for academia. Uh, and of course, it has some benefits as well as some some downsides that you're seeing. I think part of it too, you mentioned the uh, it has to work 100%. I, I think that's also part of academia where we 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 do have a culture of failure that we punish it ruthlessly. Uh, we are all about um, measuring each other to see who can be assigned what position in a hierarchy. And part of that is upward by achievement and part of it is downward by failure. And so we, we haven't really, some academics will say to our students, it's okay to fail, that's how we learn. But the reality still is, that's also how we punish people. That's how we exclude people. And exclusion is a key part of higher education. Which is which is terrible and inhumane in all kinds of ways, but it's it's the sociology, it's the institutional structure we inhabit. Um, you know that said, the pandemic showed most recently that we are also creatures of enormous innovation and creativity. I mean, you think about how many campuses flipped online in just a few weeks, if not just a few days, usually without any extra resources. Uh, you think about how many faculty learn to teach online, often for the first time, and how many support staff from technologists to grants officers to provosts had to reconfigure their operations for uh, being wholly online and then blended and, and so on. Um, and I think for all the mistakes, all the problems that occurred, I think we should be proud of that, um, that we showed that we are really capable of a great deal of innovation, a great deal of creativity. And you can see that whenever campuses fight about a curricular change, you see both of those tensions at work. You see that, oh, we defend what we have. It's really good. But also coming up with a new curriculum is a major intellectual lift. There's a lot of work going on, a lot of research. Yeah. Um, 
So that, that kind of tension is really just endemic to higher education as it works. Yeah, and to your point, I think exactly on what that change means for faculty admin who already might be overworked and most likely also underpaid unless you're like a maybe a star someone sure. at an Ivy League, right? So when that change that is necessary is also tied to a lot of workload on people who are already loaded, I think that is also like the back end side, right? Like of some of that potential resistance, but also um, delay in adoption. Uh, I think this is very, very true. And it is, I'm afraid I have to speak to the US situation here. My, my research is global, but I, I, I know the United States best. Um, we have for about 30, maybe 40 years been engaged in a kind of casualization of the professoriate. That is, we've, we've reduced the proportion of faculty who are on tenure track and increased the proportion of faculty who are temporary. Um, and temporary faculty are usually badly paid. Um, in the United States, we privatize health insurance and they usually don't have that. Uh, and they usually lack all kinds of other support as well. And those adjuncts are the preponderance of teaching faculty in the United States. Um, and it's a generally realized within academia to be a kind of humanitarian disaster uh, at its worst, but we really aren't changing that very much. Uh, we, we more or less accept this as, as the structure that we inhabit. Uh, and the, the faculty and the staff who are full-time, uh, everywhere I go, people describe being exhausted. Uh, they've had two plus years of pandemic and uh, didn't get a break. I mean, they were, they were stuck in uh, a terrible situation. Uh, they did not get extra resources for this. They haven't had a vacation, you know, on uh, uh, extra downtime. Uh, the federal government gave uh, institutions a great deal of financial support in 2020, but that was largely aimed at uh, patching holes caused by the pandemic. So another reason, I think, for faculty and staff to resist change is, as you said, uh, just exhaustion. Uh, I show up and talk about climate change and people just like, ah, ah. Another thing. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess um, it's really sometimes I feel like maybe I do have the privilege to just like go in and say, like, hey, like, why are we resisting change? This is good. Like, we should be prototyping. Obviously, there's going to be more work for all of us. Like, but then, you know, going back to your point, what has other faculty or admin has been had to go through? Or even, you know, it showed the pandemic showed us that we we're actually very capable of change where we need to, but that came with an extra level of exhaustion, as you men mentioned. Mm -hmm. So many people, that was really, really hard. Um, so it really, you know, for faculty who have been teaching in a certain way for years and years, right? Like suddenly you're like, yeah, you're gonna change it overnight now. Um, and the stress of that, I can't even imagine, right? Um, for a digitally savvy, like generation, maybe that was like, oh, okay, so we're on Zoom. Uh, right. But that wasn't necessarily the universal reaction to that change. No, what I've, what I've often found when I, when I talk to faculty and staff is that they tend to underrate their digital skills. And they only do that when it comes to academics. So if I ask them what kind of technology you use in the class, 
they'll get really embarrassed and say, maybe I use this one thing and I don't like it. But then I say, okay, what technology do you use in your personal lives? And they'll quickly run off, you know, I've got five streaming services. I've got a phone and a tablet and a laptop. And, you know, I, my children play these games and I'm on this discord and I bank on this, you know, on this website and, and all this stuff. Um, but then when they look at a learning management system, they panic. And, and I, I, I think it's, it's, this is largely perceptual now. Um, yeah. that, and, and it depends. I mean, I'm generalizing massively. I mean, there, there are people like myself who are early adopters. Uh, and then there are faculty who, and staff who, for different professional particular reasons, are really good at certain technologies. So a lot of people in STEM fields are more advanced because so much of their work involves using a lot of technology. Yeah. Uh, you know, in astronomy, you know, there's very little naked eye astronomy, right? You have to put something between your eye and space to, to learn more. Um, and then some um, just uh, really got used to this. And I, I think I, I shouldn't make this into faculty and staff learning themselves. I mean, a key part is, is we had so many staff and some faculty who helped other people in this. Uh, I mean, in, in the spring of 2020, I had lots of faculty come to me and say, ah, what is Zoom? I don't know what's going on. I could say, it's okay. We have a generation of instructional designers who have been working on this. They have a body of scholarship, bodies of practice. You trust them, they can really help you. Uh, yeah. And that, that profession has really just grown ever since. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so we talked about, you know, the resistance, why that might happen. Um, I think also, you know, being a very old and very, very large system at this point, like how slow change might be, but even if it's like overnight, that doesn't come easy to obviously to many people. And that's a lot of work for many people. Um, and I guess like one thing I also would like to touch upon, and this is like already very like obvious in US, right? There are like two industries that are ridiculously expensive in this in this country. Like one is healthcare and um, one is education. Yes. And like in my mind, I, I kind of see it as also what doesn't click to me is like in healthcare, you know, the way you would get an operation five years ago is different than today, right? You continually see some innovation happening in how modern medicine is treating us, or, you know, you, you have new medications out. And I'm not saying these are all for our benefit, but there's a lot of investment in internal innovation. Um, whereas education, we see incorporation of tech, but these it's generally the hub of you know, external innovations happening and we're bringing it together, but we didn't necessarily innovate or at least what I observe and you're the expert. So I'd love your thought on this. Um, innovate on how we teach that in many, many, even in the top schools in US and many places around the world, there will still very much be a board um, with a lecturer or a professor in the room with desks generally like just facing the wall and the curriculum is pretty much designed for like an hour, two hour class. Um, it's in, you know, the instructor's liberty to make that as interactive as possible, but it's very likely that it could just be a straight lecture that is quite hard to pay attention to, right? So the way that we teach, or I guess, I don't want to say teach, but like maybe we need to educate ourselves, but we still see a lot of teaching mode. So in my mind, it's even harder to justify the expense in that way. Like, why do we keep seeing the rise that is happening um, when we still have pretty much the same model happening over the course of like many, many years? So 
if you can unpack this puzzling question for me, that would really appreciate that. Sure. Well, I think there's a, there's a popular argument which says that we overhauled teaching and learning about 100, maybe 110 years ago for the rising third industrial revolution. And that that's what led to, especially in primary and secondary school, uh, the creation of classes with clearly defined times and bells to remind us when classes were starting or ending, um, you know, uh, students sitting in rows and standardized curriculum and all that. And that definitely was a revolution. Um, and that definitely had a huge lasting impact. Um, the, the, what I would I would like to put alongside that, though, there is a long history of educational reform uh, going back centuries. In fact, if you want, you know, you could start with Plato and Socrates, who, of course, didn't do well in the end uh, by that educational reform. Uh, it's, you know, you think about someone like Rousseau, whose uh, philosophy included a long novel-length treatise on education. That's still influential today. Uh, and we have whole bodies of interesting practice. We think about uh, project-based learning, inquiry-based learning. Uh, we think about the emphasis on discussion rather than on presentation. Uh, we can think about as well uh, constructivist pedagogies. I mean, and constructivism dates back to the 1920s and uh, the whole idea of students making stuff in order to make their sense of meaning, make their learning. And then uh, politically radical pedagogies, everything from you know, feminist pedagogies to the kind of learner-centered empowerment um, and, and to the more uh, explicitly political uh, revolutionary pedagogies of people like Paulo Freire. And those all run alongside this. And I don't see good data about which pedagogies are most prevalent at a given time. I see a lot of anecdotes, but in part because it's it's very, very hard to structure uh, that kind of research. Um, in the United States, uh, our colleges and universities, of which there are 4,000 plus, uh, are fairly autonomous uh, and complex. So it's it's very, very difficult to measure all this. Uh, but we do have we do have all these options in play at, at a given time. I think technology really does two things. It, it, it adds a whole series of new pedagogical potentials, but it also lets us bring back some of the uh, alternatives I've mentioned before. So I, I, why do we stick to the old ones? Uh, partly for the problems I'm, or the reasons I mentioned before, you know, our inherent conservatism. But I would also add a couple of things. One is that depending on what institution you're in and where you are in institution, you might not get rewarded for taking a risk of, of pedagogical innovation. Uh, if you get bad uh, student evaluations, uh, you might not get hired again, uh, or it might ding you. Uh, and you might not get any kind of support to do that. That is, you might not get, if you want to try something new with technology, you might not have any staff to help you. Uh, if you want to try something in your room, you might not have any staff. Um, and you might not get release time in order to take the time to research and design the, the learning situation. Uh, I think a, a, a second issue too is it depends on the attitude towards the constellation of pedagogy and curriculum. That is, if, if you show up and say, I've got this fantastic body of knowledge that I really want to share because I think cell biology is amazing and everyone needs to learn this. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard not to basically rant and rave for half an hour about that. Uh, I, I know I've, I've been there myself and I'll say, oh, 18th century literature, let me tell you, this is astonishing. And, and that enthusiasm counts for a lot. Um, but then to stop that and say, okay, 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 I'm, I'm not going to be the extrovert here. I, I'm, I'm going to step back. 
and, and make room for my students to explore and, and make spaces for them to explore and develop. And that's, that's tricky. And almost nobody in graduate school gets training with that. Um, in fact, one of the secrets, one of the bad secrets of academia is that the majority is, from what I can tell, of graduate students who graduate to become faculty get zero training uh, in teaching and learning, uh, which means they tend to reproduce what they've experienced, mm -hmm. which means they reproduce that over time. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a second factor, I think. And I'm putting it benignly because I think most people get into higher education because of love. I don't want to come across as today's hippie. I'm, I'm, I'm actually much more dour than that. But but I, I think people don't do this for the money. Uh, they yeah. they don't do this for you know the scheduling. They, they do it because they're absolutely bananas about architecture um, or about astronomy. Um, and I, I that's in many ways the glory of higher education. But it's also a downside. It means that we don't pay well. Uh, it means that we can take advantage of people very easily. Um, so that, that wanders a bit away from your point. Um, we do know uh, a wide range of pedagogies that we can try. Um, I'm a huge fan of simulations and game-based learning, for example, and I've been doing that uh, for years. And, and the results, I think, are very solid. Um, but it, it, it takes time and it takes support. Yeah, yeah. And I think what you said in terms of, you know, you kind of repeat what you're exposed to because of that lack of, like, teaching of, okay, how might you do this different, right? Like pushing kind of for like innovation in that and um, pushing for more like collaborative methods with the students. I think because that's not embedded in, as you said, no one's evil going into, like we see this in design too, right? No designer goes out into the world saying, let me create some inaccessible stuff that exclude people and also harm the planet, right? They're just unexposed and they don't know. <laughs> Uh, like how to better design. So unfortunately, when that happens at scale, right, that lack of exposure, it impacts the world. And similarly in education, right, if we don't have that taught to us or exposed to us at an early time before we become the new generation of academics, I think that is the problem. Then you're this like really passionate person about your field, and you obviously keep wanting to talk about it, but maybe that's not the best way to teach or not, maybe not the best way to learn for the students, but that's a different, that's like the side project to another project, right? Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. And and it's, I, I like to tell a story when I was uh, an undergrad, I took an astronomy class and I, I was a terrible student. I, <laughs> I, loved, I loved astronomy and I didn't study because I thought I knew the field really well. And when I bought the textbook, it turns out it was actually a textbook that I had read when I was in junior high just for fun. And, and so I was a jerk in the class, but at one point the prof um, was lecturing and there were maybe, I don't know, 300 of us in the, in the classroom or in the lecture hall. And he said, yeah, well, you know, he was describing the outer planets of the solar system and mentioned that Pluto was the outermost planet. And being a jerk, I stood up in the auditorium and said, that is incorrect. <laughs> and, and you could see like all the students went, <gasps> and the prof stopped in his tracks. And you could just see like, lights go on in his head that he had delivered this lecture so many times that when he initially wrote the lecture that was true but oh. since then pluto had curved within the orbit of neptune and he just hadn't revised it and you could see him kind of like wake up on the stage and say yes that's that's correct oh, that's so bad I mean, it was, it was, what a terrible person it was, but, but, <laughs> but also, I mean, you did the wake up call that he needed maybe. So. 
Well, yeah, but but also that's a you know that that's you know given incentives. That was a major research university. Um, you know, all the incentives there are in publishing articles and and getting grants and doing research, and that's you know that's where you had the time. That was also in the the same university where the Unabomber was a grad student. I never oh. met him. Never met him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I like reflecting back in college for me, what I realized maybe the only class I would really be just like open to listen to the professor nonstop was psychology, just because I'm like fascinated by the topic. But everything else, I the class looking back now that I most remember are the ones where uh, the professor would bring in a guest lecturer who's practicing something out there and like telling us how they took some of the stuff that they learned out there. Those were the, those are the only things I remember from some classes, you know, mm-hmm. that's why like, for example, I'm big on guest lectures too now for a student. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like that practicality apparently was something I was looking for that did not exist. And it was more heavily the- theory, which i couldn't relate to after a while like for me especially the young mind I was just like how am I going to use this and it didn't connect unless we had those visits um and I guess like to pedagogy you know like I experienced this with my four-year-old who's in early education right when like signing up for like schools you know there's like Waldorf Montessori uh Reggio Emilio I think like so many you know Mm -hmm. uh, things that I like I keep like reading about and I'm kind of at this point puzzled and I'm like looking at a mixed methods school because of, I don't know which one's mm-hmm. best I just want exposure to all different things um but I also realize is that if you're looking at such schools that are more progressive project-based or student-centered you know um they're private schools and they also they're new schools so very likely they don't go beyond first grade second grade right there's a lot of struggle among parents who are like okay great like we're gonna go here until like kindergarten or first grade and then suddenly we're gonna put you into like a regular classroom what's gonna happen and in higher education maybe that's not a continuation thing but obviously access to that higher education like there are so many people with student loans paying off for years and years and you mentioned the economic side of this. I don't, I mean, maybe the system is designed to be that way, right? Like to purposefully exclude, right? But how does that gonna change? Because how, how are we gonna, like, are we gonna continue the culture of being the exclusive club if you provide something different or maybe something a bit more advanced or something more innovative? Uh, yeah. Is, yeah, so that's the question. It's funny. Last night, my daughter and I started watching a TV show that we hadn't seen, and 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 the main plot of it was a, a a horror TV show. But the main plot device, the main plot motivator, was the main character having to pay off student loans and taking a job she wouldn't have done otherwise, um, which which I thought was and, and no one contested that, right? No, we said, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's I think there's two things here. One is that. Uh, Worldwide, uh, academia is very hierarchical. You know, we have elaborate systems of tables. And you know, when I talk to faculty and staff about games, people often say, Fuck, games, you know, we don't do that. Like, well, you're actually playing a pretty elaborate one. Uh, you know, you've got points, you've got league tables. I mean, and, and you, um, in the US, we have this magazine, US News and World Report, that publishes uh, uh, an annual ranking of American colleges and universities. And everybody I know in academia despises it. 
and they all and they all know it inside and out. Um, you know, we've actually had people go to prison for um, staging policies that um, you know violated uh, law in order to appear better in the in the ranking. Um, the 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 hierarchy is 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 extensive. It's built into us, and I find people's politics make no difference when it comes to academic hierarchy. Uh, people who call themselves very progressive will be very very quick to. Um, uh, deny the value of somebody who's very low on a certain ranking and to overvalue something that's very high in the ranking. And that that appears in our uh, in one way that we assess universities. The more exclusive they are, the more we love them. Uh, so if you look at an institution like a community college, which is basically open admission, anybody who's interested can go, and you compare that to, say, uh, Harvard or an elite liberal arts college, where the admissions rate is 10%, 5%, 3%, and nobody sees that as a failure, quite the opposite. They see it as desirable, uh, both inside of higher education and outside, uh, and that's that's one part of, of academia, but at the same time, part of our mission is access. And, and that is built in in different ways. I, mean, I mentioned community colleges, which are the biggest sector of American higher ed. Uh, there's also a lot of state universities and state colleges, which are built by states in order to improve access. Uh, we have historical reasons for this, everything from uh, land grant institutions, uh, charters to uh, the huge push for STEM uh, to get more and more people more access to this. In fact, starting in the 1960s, we just had this ever-increasing push to get more people, more college experience. So we, we have these two and they kind of jam against each other and they they, they don't really cohere. Uh, and and it leads to some bizarre outcomes. So the, the institutions that are by far the most exclusive tend to spend more per student than anybody else. And the students and the universities that are most inclusive, the ones that have to teach the students who need the most help, usually only afford to pay the least amount per student, which is completely backwards by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I, I, I think that that plays a key role in almost everything we do. To, to go back to the financing, I remember about 10 years ago, late one night, I had an epiphany. I was looking at higher education finance. I was looking at, econom at the uh, economics of healthcare. And I realized that they were very similar in that uh, the pricing is completely opaque. You know, if if I fall down right now and break my leg and I get carried to the hospital, I don't get a menu of choices. You know, here's how much bandaging will cost, anesthesiology is this much. No. And, and even when I'm done, when I get a bill, that's not the result because I have to run it through insurance. That might be one, two, three times uh, before that happens. And the same is true of, of, of higher education. We publish our tuition. We don't usually say as much about room and board for those that are residential. We don't usually say as much about fees. But even that tuition is what most people don't actually pay because we discount tuition so extensively. Uh, that is a lot of students come to campus. It depends on the campus. And they receive work study. They receive scholarships. They receive grants, which reduce that amount. Um, almost nobody talks about this outside of higher ed. And in fact, inside higher ed, it's not fully appreciated. Um, the reason, though, those, those sticker prices have gone up it's interesting. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of argument about this, but I think part of it is we've increased the number of students we have from about 1980 to about 2012, and we did not really increase our scaling beyond hiring more people. So we had to hire more and more people, and with more and more credentials, we have to pay more. That's the way our economy works. 
Um, so we, our biggest costs are humans, and that's more expensive. Uh, within higher education, we uh, our healthcare is very expensive, and that keeps shooting up way beyond what it is in the private sector. Um, and additionally, we have a large number of staff, and, and this is controversial. Uh, that is, we have people, anybody who is not a student, anybody who is not teaching and research faculty is basically staff, and that's custodians, IT people, librarians, presidents, grants officers, athletic coaches, and all of that. And then their numbers have increased massively, and often for pretty solid reasons. Uh, we have uh, DEI offices that are growing like mad because now we decide that diversity, inclusion, and uh, sorry, diversity, equity, and inclusion matter a great deal. Uh, we have people who run student life because we want to improve that experience and so on. Um, and there's also empire building that goes on and there's there's corruption of various kinds. But that huge amount of staff, again, has to be paid for. Yeah. And all of these uh, lead to big, big costs. But the, the, the other thing that happened at the same time is that big enrollment boom is that public universities started getting paid less and less money by their state governments. Uh, in fact, I, I mentioned where I went to university, uh, a former president said he used to describe the University of Michigan as a state-supported institution, then as a state-assisted institution, and then as a state-located institution, and then he described it as a state-molested institution. <laughs> and that's, you know, when you... When you oh my God. It's great. It's a great line. I mean, when you get, when you get universities that receive, say, 10, 15% of their income, from their state, well, they have to make it up somehow, which is why we have the huge debt bubble, um, because we decide to take out debt. Uh, and that is you know, an enormous, and in the US, almost unique um, situation. Um, and that scares people. Uh, it scares people from enrolling. And not coincidentally, enrollment has dropped since 2012. Every year it's gone down, uh, even without COVID, and it's going to continue to go down further. Um, so our, our, the way we pay for this is, is very strange. I mean, I'm 56 and I'm still paying my student loans. Um, I mean, I hope to pay them off before I die. That's one of my aspirations, um, which is kind of bonkers, but that's the way this works right now. Yeah. I feel like that's a journal in itself that you could publish. Yes. <laughs> my student loan and my lifespan. I think that's just, <laughs> oh my God, that's dark, but so, so true. And yeah, I mean, obviously, these are all so complex problems, and at this point, wicked problems that, you know, one university is not going to solve for it. It calls for in-depth, private-public collaboration, mm -hmm. uh, and this is just one side of the problem, right? Like, we were talking about financial access, but within the system, too, there are so many things. I do want to talk about a, with a great highlight on your new book which is so brilliant, uh, universities on fire, higher education in the age of climate crisis. And I feel like, you know, we talk about world problems in kind of silos, right? There is sustainability, climate change here, DEI is here, like healthcare here, education, but technically these are all converging, right? And they all impact one another and we don't serve well if we're like addressing them in silos. So I actually love seeing these two topics that I think are heavily addressed separately uh, together in this book. So please can you give us like a quick synopsis about it and um, 
question is, you know, uh, where does a campus get its electrical power from? Now, most campuses outsource that uh, to an off-site location. Uh, and so they often get it from facilities that burn coal or natural gas or oil. So do you recite that uh, that in some other way, for example, in Kentucky, Berea uh, College um, bought shares in a local hydropower plant, uh, and then that's where they're sourcing their electricity from now on. Or do you source some more electricity on campus? Do you cover your buildings with solar cells? Do you prop up wind turbines? Um, and, and there's more and more to that. The physical part is an enormous world by itself. We put that aside. Next to that is the whole research world. I mean, a lot of what we know about climate change comes from academic research. And that sprawls across a whole number of disciplines, so meteorology, fluid dynamics, civil engineering, earth science, environmental studies, obviously. Uh, and those are fields that are likely to keep growing. So on a campus, we should probably see more and more faculty doing more and more research along those lines, which raises some questions of how do you support that? How do you support it politically when it might be politically infeasible? Uh, how do you support faculty who aren't skilled in that but want to learn more about it? And then we have to keep out an eye out for how the subject sprawls across other disciplines. So if we look at the social sciences, we already have psychologists doing work on what does it mean to have your natural environment change in your life. Uh, we have political scientists looking at how do we rethink state sovereignty if we try to have supranational authorities to uh, reconstruct this. You take a look at art and communication and journalism where people are trying to figure out how to best depict climate change and communicate it to an audience which is sometimes resistant or if not actively hostile. And in the humanities, people are looking at climate in history, the ethics of climate change in philosophy, climate fiction and literature, and so on. I mean, it's, it's a massively interdisciplinary field. And that plays out in a third domain, which is teaching and learning. So do we expand the curriculum of teachings? In, in a Spanish university um, this past fall, a group of students revolted, seized control of administration buildings in order to demand, and they won, that the university would mandate a class on climate change for all students, including grad students. Uh, so do we increase that? Do we have more and more majors in, in, in various parts of climate change, climate communication, climate engineering, and so on? Uh, do we have more colleges, more schools devoted to this? then how do we teach this differently? Do we have more simulations, more project-based learning? Because that often works in earth science. How do we teach students who may come from uh, climate disasters? Uh, how do we cope with their trauma and support them? And beyond that, beyond teaching and research and the physical campus is also community relations. So if you're in New York City, do you partner with civil authorities? Do you partner with businesses and nonprofits to do climate communication, to do climate support? When you have those brutally hot summers in New York City, which I remember well, um, do you offer cooling shelters on campus and then open them to people from the community or vice versa? Do you point your academics to public cooling shelters? Uh, and then there's the matter of academia in the whole world. I mean, this is a... a the transformation that may be entailed, entailed by climate change could upend all kinds of the way ways that we operate and function in higher education. If, for example, we decide to cut back economic growth, we decide to go for a no growth or degrowth economy because we see that that economic model has given us climate change. What does that do to academic institutions that are built on an assumption of economic growth? Uh, if we have state governments, national governments that take one policy and the campus is spending another policy, how do those coincide? And do, do academics get active about this? If this is the biggest crisis in the world right now, 
what role can we play? Do we lobby governments? Do we have more public intellectuals? Our responsibility of educating a generation of students, how are we preparing them to be, if Greta Thunberg's generation is a college age, I mean, are we preparing them to be those kind of revolutionaries? So that's briefly the outline of my book is exploring those questions and looking out about 75 years to see how education can, can respond. That's an incredible explanation on why everybody needs to read it. Everybody in academia and everybody outside of like academia just for analogous learning too, right? Because what you're talking about really, really can be carried on to many other industries like adoption, research, mm -hmm. and learning, which also means onboarding your teams, right? Like if you're a corporate organization, right? Like international one, that teaching and learning is still very much relevant and the, the physical implications of all of that, right? Like these are all things that any industry needs to think about. So that's why your book could be an amazing guidebook, I feel like for anyone in any field to kind of also synthesize, you know, what our role in this can be, right? In the end, I think there is a lot of big words and conversations out there that it's not easily accessible for a lot of people or at an individual level, it's kind of remains too high level and you're kind of like, well, what do I do about it? But I think to your point exactly, we don't have the luxury to not do something at an individual level too. So what can we do in our own power, um, in our own field and domain, right? Everybody has a role and if we don't own it sooner than later, um, you know, the crisis is only getting bigger and it's impacting us in our own future. Yes. And so does, you know, do we, do we adapt? Uh, I mean, I mentioned, you know, walling up a campus and we're protected from sea level rise. Do we, do we try and mitigate things? Do we try, the campuses, for example, uh, offer to host carbon capture units um, to try and suck down CO2 from the atmosphere? Um, you know, do we revolutionize education? Uh, a good friend of mine who's a climate activist says that we should stop doing individual grades because hyper-individualism got us to the climate crisis. Wow. So de-individualize in academia, well, maybe we should have more group or cohort grading and assessment. I don't, I don't know if that's right, but that's a, I like the bold way of thinking. Me um, too. That's a really interesting point of view. Oh my God. Okay, so... We can talk forever, Ryan. We already know that, right? So I, I want to bring us back in and you already sprinkled in beautifully throughout the conversation, but what would be your advice to anyone who wants to push boundaries, make progress, um, challenge the norm, right? Regardless of maybe in the academia space, maybe outside of that space, what would be your advice to them? Well, one you'll be unsurprised to know that I think you should have a futures orientation. Uh, and, and that's not just me saying futures are great. Um, well, I, I guess it kind of is, but um, <laughs> because the, we were, we're entering uh, a time of increasing instability uh, and basing our projections and our, and our desires on the recent past is of decreasing utility. Uh, we have to be imaginative and think about the ways that the future is unfolding in ways that are very, very different from the present and the recent past, uh, and, and to embrace that. Uh, so that's, that's one part. The second part is, if I can borrow a page from uh, business, is to think about aligning what you do with, with mission. Uh, so if in academia, if you want to improve teaching, 
I think in many ways, that's a, an easy case to make. Uh, I'd like to have my students make a blog because I think this is a good way for them to develop their voice and to learn information literacy. And that lines with my campus mission. It's part of our teaching goal. Okay, that, that really helps. If you're in uh, anywhere outside of academia, to think about what institution you're affiliated with and to line up what you're doing, that innovation with its purpose. It sounds kind of cheesy or maybe obvious, but it, it often isn't, especially if we're really immersed in that. Um, and a third is to do this as collaboratively as possible. Uh, I don't think if any of these problems that can be solved by one person, we've already taken care of that. Um, we need as many eyes on a problem as possible. We need to learn from other people as much as possible. So networking, using whatever means possible, buttonholing people face-to-face, -face, doing something over Zoom, social media, whatever. Just the more collaboration, the more networking, I think, the better. So those, those are my three pieces of advice for now. Brian, this was such a treat. Thank you so, so much. And thank you for all the advice. And is, are there any news that you would like to just share um, with us that we should be on the watch for too? Well, I guess two pieces of news. My uh, new book, uh, University is on Fire, is coming out at the end of this month, so March 28th. So I recommend looking for it. Get it on Amazon or from the Johns Hopkins University Press site. And I'm doing a whole bunch of book talks and a book tour about it to promote it. I'm happy to answer any questions about it. Uh, the second thing is the Future Trends Forum, my weekly video conversation, continues. We're in our eighth year. And uh, in fact, uh, today we're hosting a fantastic researcher who is talking about enrollment uh, and where enrollment stands right now. So I'd recommend just checking out the Future Trends Forum and, uh, and seeing what programs we have to offer. So those are two announcements. Brilliant. We're definitely looking forward to the book pre-order and continue to follow Brian with his all his great insights about the industry that you could also really take away for any of anything that you're working on. Thank you so much, Brian. This was lovely. Well, thank you so much, Pranar, for being a fantastic interlocutor and for having such great ideas and uh, being a great designer and being a very, very supportive host. Thank you. Thank you.